In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. My dear friends in Christ, there was a church on the south side of Chicago who started to host AA meetings in their basement each week. Not a huge deal. A lot of churches do it. We've done it here in the past. While the meeting was going on, the the pastor was out front of his house, which was right next to the church, and he was doing some weeding in his garden. And during one of the breaks, a man came out of the meeting to have a smoke break, and realizing that this man was the pastor, he went up to him and he said, hey, i got a question for you. And the pastor said, sure, what's up? And the man said, why can't church be more like AA? It didn't sound like an accusation. It actually sounded like a genuine question. So the pastor said, well, how so? The man said, well, the times I've gone to church, everybody pretends that they've got all their stuff together. That their, their lives are all perfectly normal and everything is going well. And that makes it really hard for someone like me. And the pastor said, that makes it hard? And he said, yeah, to connect with people, you know, to be real about what's happening in my life. I think he's right. Why is it so hard to do that here? To be real, to be honest about what's going on in our lives? I think I know the answer. The reason is because you and I do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Remember that line? Jesus said it last week to Peter when Peter stepped in and told Jesus, No, Jesus, you're not going to suffer, you're not going to die, you're not going to go to the cross because I don't want a suffering Christ. I don't want a loser Christ. I don't want a weak Christ. I want a big Christ. I want a successful Christ. He wanted Jesus to be the greatest. When in reality, Jesus had just got done telling him that he came to be the least. And today, we see Peter was not alone in his thinking. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked him, Who is the greatest in your kingdom, Jesus? Now, unlike the question the man asked in AA, I I do think that this question bodes a problem. It's not an innocent question. You see, it actually revealed something was wrong within the disciples. Something was wrong within their thinking. And yet... Isn't it also the kind of question that when the disciples ask it, you and I kind of lean in close? Because we are dying to know the answer to this question. In the deepest parts of our soul, we want to know, yes, Jesus, what does it take to make me the greatest? For you to think highly of me. The mind of man revealed in this question by the disciples is the persistent human 
striving after greatness and the recognition that goes with it. And we can never escape these debates and conversations, can we? We have these debates with our friends on a pretty much weekly basis about who or what is the GOAT, the greatest of all time, whether it's in entertainment or sports or companies or investments. We call ourselves and we think of ourselves as the greatest nation in the world. And so we want to make sure that we elect politicians or leaders that keep us that way or have the power and ability to make us the greatest nation again. It doesn't just happen out there on a big scale. It happens on our day-to-day lives on a personal level too, doesn't it? Students strive to be at the top of their class. Workers fight for promotions to move up the corporate ladder. We sacrifice nearly everything we are and everything we have to make sure that our kids get the best and that they are the best. And of course, this sadly doesn't stop once we walk through those back doors and enter here either, does it? We want to have a big, successful church, too. Not because of what it would say about God, or because it would make Him look good, or because it would be for His glory. No, we want a big church. We want a successful church because it makes us feel big and successful. And if we are going to be a big and successful church, then how in all the world can we be real here about what's going on in our lives? How can we be honest about what we're dealing with? Because you know what would happen if you actually did that? Well, it would threaten your ability for people to view you as being potentially the greatest. It's such a worldly way of thinking. It's so worldly, actually, that you and I consider it natural. How else do you function and operate in the world unless you work hard and strive to be the best? So we constantly adjust ourselves to the world. We make its standards our standards, and and its wisdom our wisdom, and its goals our goals to the degree that my world starts to adjust me to itself. And where my world can't mold me or break me in, it breaks me off and it breaks me up. But of all the places where we could show that brokenness, this certainly isn't one of them. Jesus, who is the greatest in your kingdom? Man, that's an important question. And the irony of it is, of course, Jesus is standing there in front of the 11 men that you and I call apostles, saints. Jesus, you've got 11 options and you can't go wrong. Unless you don't pick any of them, which Jesus doesn't. No, instead he leans over and he picks up a little child and he says, you want to know who's the greatest in my kingdom? This little one right here. 
Humble yourselves like a little child. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now the follow-up question is, why? Why does Jesus want us to emulate children? Why is it that Jesus so highly views and values children? And our immediate reaction and answer that, to that question is what? Well, because of their innocence. The innocence of our youth, the innocence of our children, we say. But the Bible doesn't refer to that. In fact, the Bible kind of says the opposite. We're born into this world. Our, chinful, our, our children are sinful little scoundrels. And if you're a parent or you've ever been around children for five minutes, you know that to be true. And Jesus agrees, and so he doesn't say that. That's not what he's saying. No, Jesus says, humble yourself like a little child. Humility seems to be the key. Which again, if you've ever been around children for an extended period of time, has to sort of kind of make you chuckle a little bit. Humble yourself like a little child, Jesus? Jesus, these might be the most prideful, self-centered little creatures on the planet. Little children don't have humble opinions of themselves. And it becomes very clear at a very early age that nothing outside of their immediate needs or wants in the world even exists. Humble yourself like a child? What do you mean by that? You see, when Jesus is praising the humility of children, he's not talking about how children view themselves. In other words, He's not praising children for their lack of humility or their lack of pride, I mean. No, when Jesus calls little children humble, he's pointing to their natural, born, low position in this world. Our children are our lives. We say things like, our children are our future. And so we start to invest in them and in their success at a very young age. But that's not the way it worked in the ancient world. No, in fact, children held very little value until they could join the military or start learning a trade to support the family. And so no one would have thought that the answer to the disciples' question, who is the greatest, the very last answer to that question would have been a child. They're helpless and dependent. They can't survive on their own. They rely on everyone else around them. They instinctively depend on mom and dad to feed them and clothe them and house them and clean them. And this is how God makes children. And it's actually a very beautiful thing. Because there's more going on here. You see, from the very beginning, God meant it to be a picture of faith. Of our picture, a picture of our relationship with God. Children are completely reliant on others for their needs. They cry out and dad protects them. They cry out and mom comforts them. They cry out and someone changes their diaper and they have very little to no shame in any of it. Because what other options do they have? They are born in this lowly position, needing and expecting everything from their parents. 
And in this sense, we could say that children have no pride at all. They're willing to lie there naked, filthy, hungry, and needy, and to simply cry out and beg for help. And when it comes to your and my relationship with God, how we view ourselves in God's kingdom, Jesus says, be like that. Be the needy one. Be the helpless one who is 100% reliant on God's grace and his mercy for everything. Trust him completely. So that unlike those who insist that little children cannot believe, little children cannot have faith, Jesus actually insists that if you and I want to have faith, then we must become like little children. You see, Jesus says childlike faith isn't the rare exception. It's the rule. This is what true faith in God looks like. It looks like a helpless child relying entirely on the goodness of their parents. The greatest people in the history of the world, we would say, are doers. They're the people who make things happen and get important stuff done. But that is not what makes you the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says the greatest are not the doers. The greatest are the receivers. And no one receives more. No one receives better than a child. You see, this is why Jesus calls your baptism, for example, being born again of water and the Spirit. This is why St. Peter calls your, or St. Paul calls your baptism a rebirth by the Holy Spirit. You become a child in baptism, a child of God. And becoming a child of God means depending on God. It means receiving from God. It means living in the lowly position of needing and expecting all things from Him. That's what faith is. That's what the kingdom of heaven is. The second reason that Jesus calls us to emulate children is because, at least to a certain age... Children implicitly believe what trustworthy adults tell them. This is why, dear parents, it is so important that you tell them and you give them Jesus, who is the truth. This is also why Jesus speaks so harshly to those who would lie and deceive children, who would withhold Jesus, or teach them what is contrary to the word of God. Jesus says, if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. And this is not hyperbole. Jesus is not exaggerating. God is this serious about defending his children. And so Jesus never gets angrier. He never speaks more harshly than he does here. And he speaks the words of his Father. 
our Father, who is protective of us. He is jealous to keep us as his very own because our Father knows what the sad, miserable life looks like outside of his goodness. And if you've ever seen a a video or a movie where a, a child is ripped away from the grips of his or her mother, you can start to begin to understand why our Father in heaven is so zealous to keep us. Because he created us. Because he brought us into this world. Because he provides for us and protects us. And even more than that, because he has redeemed us. Us lost and condemned creatures with the life and blood of his only begotten son. And now he wants nothing more than to continue to care for us eternally and keep us with Jesus Christ in the one true faith. And so Jesus tells us to cut off anything, any thought, any person, any activity that would keep us away from Christ our Savior. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Anything that leads you away from your Father in heaven that threatens to tear you apart from your life as God's children, cut it off, pluck it out, throw it away. Whatever it is, Jesus says it's not worth it. It's not worth it to hold on to all of those things and take them with you down into the depths of hell. No, it is better to have life without them. With your Father... And so Jesus says, repent and become humble like a child and receive from your Father in heaven everything in your life as a loving gift from him. Do you see how completely different the things of God are from the things of men? Those we view as the least, God calls the greatest. God values not those who claim to do all things, but those who receive all things. Do you see how drastically different things operate in the kingdom of heaven? Where the goal and purpose is not to be the greatest, but to be saved. But to be made a child of God. This is what Jesus is describing then in the last two sections there in our gospel reading. Jesus asks, what do you think? In other words, he's continuing to answer their question. Do you still have in mind the things of God or the things of men? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, what does he do? Well, the wisdom of this world, the things of men would say that you cut your losses. I mean, what's more valuable? 99 or 1? Leave the 1. You know what? It was probably being rebellious and stubborn anyway. Sheep don't just wander off by accident. Maybe it'll even teach the other 99, this is what happens when you wander outside of the fold. And Jesus says, no. You see, none of that matters anymore. 
Jesus says, one of God's children is missing. And your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. Or how about when someone sins and they don't wander away outside of the family, outside of the fold? What happens when they sin and they stay a part of it? And what if that sin particularly hurts you? What if it's even directed toward you or specifically against you? And it's someone in your own family. Someone who should and does know better. Well, what would the mind of man conjure up? Well, you should probably start plotting your revenge. You should judge that person, but from afar. Attack their reputation. Start telling people what kind of person they really are and, and what they did to you. Cut them out of your life. You say to yourself, well, you know what? If this is the way that people in church, if this is the way that the family of God treats me, then you know what? Maybe I don't want to be a part of it. Friends, that's having in mind the things of men. That's self-preserving worldly wisdom. But Jesus says, no, instead, you do the more difficult thing. You do the more loving thing. You repay their sin with love, and you go and show them their fault just between the two of you. And if they listen to you, you've won them over. Because to be a part of the family of God doesn't mean that you and I will not sin against each other. And I'm sorry if I or another Christian ever gave you the impression that that was the case, forgive me. Forgive them because it's dead wrong. No, to be a part of God's family means that when we do sin against each other, we respond not with vengeance, but with forgiveness. This is why Jesus says, if they don't listen to you, take a couple more people. And if they don't listen to the group of people, then tell it to the church. It's not because Jesus wants this to, to spread like a rumor and to grow with the pressure that we put on someone until we crush them into repentance. No, Jesus says, this one is worth that much. This one, too, is one that I want back in the fold. This, too, is one for whom I have died. We love one another enough that the goal becomes not revenge, but repentance and reconciliation and redemption. This is why Jesus then emphasizes the ministry of the keys, the, the confession and absolution. When he talks about binding and loosing, he's talking about forgiveness. Whatever you, dear Christian, forgive on earth, Jesus says, I forgive it in heaven. It has that much power. It has that much authority that when you say to someone, I forgive you your sin, Jesus says, you be sure and let them know that comes from me. That has my stamp of approval. That forgiveness is signed and sealed with my very own blood. You get to loose that person from that sin. You get to set that guilty conscience free. 
you are forever unlocking heaven to a lost and wandering soul. And Jesus says, that is what my kingdom, what my family is to be all about. And can you imagine what that would do for Christ's church if it were the case? Can you imagine what it would do for our church, for this family? You know what one of the things is I think it would do? It would probably make us look a little more like an AA meeting. In this particular sense, it would invite and encourage us to come and invite others to come and not only once they get their lives together and they start wearing their Sunday best, and here I am not talking about how you're dressed. I'm not talking about clothing. But we would, encourage, we would be encouraged to come and we would invite others to come when they're weak and when they're broken and when they're failing and when they're lost we would know that this is the place to come, that this is the place to invite people when they feel like they're the least. When you've got nothing left to give, then there's nothing more to do but receive. And when you're in that position, Jesus says, that's exactly what I want you to be like. ready to receive His peace and His strength and His comfort and His forgiveness, all of which has been paid for in full and earned for you by His Son, Jesus Christ. The one who truly is the greatest, but did so by making Himself the least and doing it all for you. In his holy name, amen.